Hi, I'm Madeline King from NYU Stern, and I'm one of the co-organizers of the ASQ blog. We're thrilled to have the opportunity today to sit down with Raina Brands and Isabel Fernandez-Mateo to ask them some questions about their paper titled Leaning Out, How Negative Recruitment Experiences Shape Women's Decisions to Compete for Executive Roles. One of the purposes of the ASQ blog is to get insights into the processes that went into the final paper that we see in ASQ. So thank you both for making the time to be here today. This topic is fascinating, a very interesting paper, and very timely as female representation in organizations has been a hot topic in popular press recently. And your paper, starting with the title and uh, other portions of the paper, directly referenced Sheryl Sandberg's 2013 book, Lean In. And this has become a very popular mantra in the mainstream discussion about women's mobility within organizations. Do you think that your findings challenge her advice, or do you think that it adds a piece to this very complicated puzzle? We actually think that the book is uh, much more nuanced than it has been reported in the press. If you actually go and read the book, Sheryl Sandberg's uh, account of uh, why you find so few women at the top of organizations incorporates both uh, demand side mechanisms, uh, that is that there are organizational practices that are biased and so on and so forth, and also supply side mechanisms. However, she goes on to focus mostly on how we how can we change the supply side? That is, how can we act on women's behavior? And that's what has been picked up by the press for the most part. So we don't actually think that our uh, findings uh, challenge her advice. Her advice uh, is, is perfectly fine according to how the state of the world is mm -hmm. right now. However, it does add a bit more uh, nuance because what we're pointing out is that the, the choices and the behavior that women uh, make in organizations cannot be understood independently on the demand side environment on the things that are happening uh, to them because of biased practices right. or discrimination or ex experiences of exclusion. So if you are an organization, you need to understand uh, how your demand side practices affect those choices. So they, they are basically not independent, but they are not contradictory. Mm -hmm. That's great. And I'm very interested to hear about the motivation for this paper in general and how this maybe came out of the observed phenomenon in the world or working with data, or can you speak a little bit to that, towards that? Yeah, so we'll give you the honest story of how this came great. out. Great. We love the uh, honest so, story. This is Isabel, by the way. So uh, this started quite a few years ago when uh, I was actually doing research on uh, hiring and executive search. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the interviews, the topic of rejection started to come up, which was not something I have thought about or was in the literature, but uh, these headhunters kept telling me that how they manage rejection of candidates was basically their most important task. It was the, most, the, the, the thing that they had to care about the most. And out of that, I wrote a paper that was published in Organization Science a few years ago in which I showed the benefits and the disadvantages of managing rejection in the hiring process. In the, in the process of doing that, this was not a gender paper at all, but when looking at the data, it, it was very obvious that this effect of rejection, discouraging executives from applying again, was stronger for women. Mm -hmm. So the, the data were saying this is stronger for women. And we have no explanation or theories or research that would speak, uh, at least that I was aware of, to why this was the case. And that's when uh, Reina came in <laughs> and we started thinking about figuring this out. How can we, how can we uh, learn more about this uh, phenomenon and this uh, data that is telling us that this rejection effect is stronger for women? Can we figure it out? Mm -hmm. And that's basically how it came up, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, the mechanism that you, uh, that you talk about in the paper is this idea of belonging uncertainty and the way in which it influences men and women's reaction to procedural justice and injustice. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about the generalizability uh, about 
this mechanism and how it might apply to other populations who may also feel that they don't belong in uh, certain contexts, particularly the upper echelons of organizations. Yeah, I think this is a very generalizable uh, mechanism. Any group that is underrepresented and negatively stereotyped in a particular domain, mm -hmm. be that <clears throat> high-level leadership or a particular mm -hmm. occupational domain, would be susceptible to these feelings of, I'm not sure if I belong here, so I'm not sure if I want to stay right. uh, in this particular context. Uh, so it would certainly, I assume, generalise to the question of race representation in uh, upper leadership. But even if you could imagine a domain where, say, white men were negatively stereotyped and underrepresented, I think we'd see the same effect Similar, playing yeah. out. And do you, do you think that this could work in the same way for non-categorical variables? Say, for there are other uh, triggers that could make people feel that they don't belong, um, such as aesthetics or tastes. Um, do you feel like it could extend that far? Yes. I, you know, the, the need to belong is obviously fundamental to all human beings. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Of course, we know that people consider idiosyncratic aspects of fit when they're thinking about whether or not they join an organisation or pursue a particular career. So uh, does this meet with my, uh, with my interests and my tastes and my preferences? Uh, is this the kind of culture that I want to work in? You know, these are questions everybody would ask themselves. And if the answer was no, you're probably not going to pursue that particular direction. I think the question about uh, broad social categories is perhaps more potent because when you have those broad social categories, um, there's a possibility for existence about negative and positive stereotypes mm -hmm. about your fit for certain domains where then we see these belonging pressures acting uh, separately on different groups of people. So, yeah, absolutely it would apply to idiosyncratic aspects of belonging, but I think in terms of predicting outcomes that organisations care about, uh, it's those broad social categories uh, that, that are more meaningful. So now this paper is extremely ambitious in that it employed multi-methods, works with field data, survey data, uh, and an experiment. So I'd be very interested to hear how the order of this multi-method approach developed. Mm. Yeah, well, obviously, <laughs> we, we, Isabel had the field data, mm -hmm. uh, so that's what we started with, but that was just showing the effect. Mm -hmm. And it, it, I personally always, always work across field to experiment. Okay, uh, always so in that direction. No, not necessarily. Usually, usually you have the field data first, um, but not always in that okay. direction. <laughs> no, there's no rules. Um, <laughs> uh, so, you know, we have this very robust and, you know, huge, huge data set showing the effect, but any effect that's real should be able to replicate. Mm -hmm. So we needed to replicate and we also need to find out what was driving it. Uh, so we went uh, then to the survey uh, and, you know, actually the survey that's in the paper is the, is the second survey we conducted. The first survey <laughs> okay. um, was actually just with an MTurk sample to see if, you know, if we could replicate the effect. And I will say that this is probably the most robust effect I've ever worked with. It, it never fails. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then we went to the experiment to really try and explore the mechanism. Mm -hmm. And, and actually, then we went back to survey to get the executive population, then went back to experiment to get the executive population for that okay. experiment. So, Two iterations. Yeah, and I think it's important to highlight that because that's very typical for me. Uh, you can find the effect, but the data that ends up in the paper is usually um, different to the data you started mm -hmm. out with. In terms of what, what would I do differently in hindsight, I think the only thing is when we first started looking for the effect, 
or sort of theorising about, you know, the mechanism, we settled fairly quickly on procedural justice. But in the review process, the review the reviewers, you know, quite rightly pushed us for sort of the mechanism behind the mechanism. Right. So, but why procedural justice was basically the question okay. they were asking. And, it, you know, I think it, you learn something in every paper that you publish. And certainly now, it, in, with the benefit of hindsight, I would have been looking for that proximal effect from day one. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's probably the only thing I would have done differently is to search for the, the mechanism behind the mechanism uh, early on. Do you have any other advice for PhD students who are thinking about tackling multi-method projects? Well, I, I think, and this advice comes from mostly doing a lot of reviewing for journals. If you don't have the training uh, in a particular domain, so if you're not an experimentalist or if you don't work with huge field data sets, mm-hmm. which is the collaboration, <laughs> you have with synergies here. Yeah. Yeah, I have I'm, never done an experiment yes, before, so I, I need I, a brainer. I just certainly couldn't work with uh, you know, the sort of data that Isabel works with. Uh, if you don't have the expertise, then collaborate. Because okay. um, I do review a lot of pa- papers where it's quite clear that no one on the team is a trained experimentalist mm-hmm. or ha- mm. is trained in these huge field data sets and you just you can't come up to the level of expertise you need to execute it properly so the advice i have would be you know seek seek collaborations with people with complementary skill sets fantastic so thinking about this paper kind of as a whole and this mechanism that you found these incredibly robust findings i'm interested to hear now that you've kind of brought both supply and demand side ex- explanations together, kind of how big or impactful you see this uh, for organizations? So I, um, I like footnotes. Yeah. <laughs> there are lots. I put lots of footnotes in my papers, and I sometimes I think that the, the most intriguing things about the paper are in the footnotes. So look at footnote 16 <laughs> of the paper. And uh, so in the process of getting this paper through the review, um, through the review process, uh, this question came up. So as you find this, we believe you, uh, how important is this for organizations? And we actually went and, and, and tried to um, assess this with a little formal model in which uh, what we show was that if this was the only thing, the only mechanism, so women's lower persistence after rejection, that was uh, affecting the percentage of women in, in, the, in the pipeline, how would this over time affect the amount of women available to fill positions mm-hmm. for, for a firm, let's say? And if you do a very, very basic formal model, model, you actually realize that the effect is quite significant. In only a few periods, if this is the only thing that's going on, uh, the firm is going to find itself with fewer and fewer women to uh, select from. Right. So obviously, that was a, a very, um, that was a toy model. It was uh, by no means uh, a serious attempt to explore this question, but I do think it opens up, uh, the findings of our paper open, open up a lot of opportunities for further, further research for organizations to try to understand when they are uh, looking at their leaky pipelines, if you wish. Right. So the fact that they are very worried that the women are not making it to the top, and many often they're worried they're leaving. Mm-hmm. What are their solutions? Are there solutions about acting on the women's behavior, or can they do something in the organizational side that might actually make the supply side less of a problem uh, without trying to act on the on the women, mm-hmm. but acting on their practices? And uh, that's an open question, but we do think it has important theoretical implications and, and huge practical implications, actually, that the demand side and the supply side are not independent is something we need to keep in mind. And where the interventions might be Where most the interventions successful. may be, yes. And more feasible, to be honest. Right. Uh, because organizations may have more of a leeway to act on their selection processes, to act on uh, their 
inclusiveness, and uh, and this might have consequences on the supply side uh, that might be indirect but much much stronger than if you're trying to change the supply side only. So hopefully we'll keep doing that. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for making the time to sit down and talk to us today. Our, our listeners appreciate it. And this article will be published in the September issue of ASQ. Uh, so look for it there. Thank you so much. Thank you.